Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Inside the Gamecocks podcast, J.C. Sherbert here with you on Thursday, April 1st. Uh, this is not going to be an April Fool's version of this podcast. Uh, I, you know, and I'm going to start off by saying something about April Fool's. I, I think for a long time, it was uh, it was funny. Uh, you know, April Fool's was always kind of a, a funny deal. Newspapers would print fake headlines, things like that. Uh, I think in the world we live in now where everything – you know, people just take bits and pieces of information. They don't really care about context. They react to headlines. And I see this all the time with sports articles, political articles, self-help articles, historical articles, whatever. And, uh, you know, here's a little secret. You know, in journalism, the people that are reporting are the ones that write the articles. You know, your headlines normally, uh, and this necessarily in the, on the Internet, uh, because you, you, writers write their own headlines on the internet most of the time, uh, but newspapers, things like that, they have people that write those for them. And so, you know, let's just say those guys are, are more designers of pages. <laughs> uh, very few talented headline writers these days. Um, and it makes things worse with social media. You know, like I get on, like if you ever get on the Washington post Instagram page uh, and then read the comments and then read the stories you know, that they're linked to, you'll understand that nobody's reading the articles. And so I, I think April Fool's jokes these days could be sort of dangerous in a lot of ways with all the misinformation that's out there. Uh, dare I say fake news. I mean, we're sort of inundated with April Fool's stuff just about every day. So uh, with Twitter and, and, and Facebook and, and the social media world that we live in. So I won't be doing that because we got some topics to talk about. Apologies for not having an episode yesterday. I actually recorded one and then got some more information about a subject that uh, kind of I didn't want to go with what I had. And that happens from time to time. And uh, you have the luxury of doing that when you have a podcast as, as opposed to a live show. I was on JB and Goldwater yesterday and sort of gave my take about uh, the Frank Martin situation, the political uh, interference, all that good stuff. And, um, Basically, I, I said, look, I don't have a problem constructing an argument saying, you know, you don't fire Frank Martin after the COVID year that he had uh, having COVID twice and his players couldn't practice and all that. Uh, but I don't think the decision was based on that. I think it was based on the trend line of the program. And really, you could trace it all back to those inexplicable losses, you know, that his teams have had since the Final Four. Uh, starting with Illinois State the year after they went to the Final Four, uh, down in Myrtle Beach at the, uh, I guess it was supposed to be in Mexico or somewhere, and then um, they had some or Puerto Rico, and they had some uh, you know, hurricane came through or whatever, so they had to move it to uh, Myrtle Beach, and you know, lo and behold, the Gamecocks played Illinois State, not a very good team, and lost, and and you know, you look at those losses during those seasons, and it's kind of funny to me because everybody talks about Frank Martin and how he can't recruit and all this other stuff. But the issue until this year, by and large, has been, hey, you know, 
you're losing to teams that you have no business losing to that you have better players than. Um, and, and that's costing the team the outcome of the season. Uh, and, and that, that to me was the, the crux of the argument uh, probably from the administration and all that. Now, look, I'm not saying that, you know, recruiting uh, in the world we live in could not be better at times. I, I, and I've talked about the in-state situation in depth and all that, but when you really look at it, it's, you know, it's a situation where I think those, those losses are, are what, what the issue is. It's not necessarily <laughs> uh, that the, the, you just can't recruit, you know, cause it's not like they're going out there and uh, not competitive against teams with talent. I mean, they are pretty competitive. Now this past year, obviously they weren't competitive in a lot of games against some teams that, you know, probably aren't as good top to bottom as the Gamecocks. Uh, but you take this year out of it. If you believe that this year shouldn't be well, they judge it on. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think you could make an argument like that. Uh, I think politicians being involved in the, in the situation uh, is fundamentally bad for any situation at South Carolina. Um, and we've heard all that for years. Politics keep the Gamecocks down. Uh, I've always thought it was sort of a boogeyman because yeah, I know some guys on the board of trustees and they're all good guys and they tend to agree with, uh, with the fans and then they get frustrated and, and it's, it's not like they're just old guarding it. Um, you know, and so that's, I think that, you know, when something like this happens and you do have politicians trying to reach, especially politicians that have no business reaching into the situation, um, I think that's troubling. Uh, and I, I've never seen a situation uh, around the SEC in all my years of covering the league and, and other schools where a political entity forced a program to stand still. And what I mean by that is there's plenty of times at Auburn and other places where politics get involved. I mean, that's fact of life with big time college athletics, especially in the Southeast. Uh, you know, I've seen plenty of times where, you know, politically you're like, you go fire that coach and we're going to give you a bunch of money to make a, make a change. Um, and so that happens, but I, I've rarely seen a situation where uh, the athletics and university leadership says, okay, we want to make a change because we want to get better. And they're told no, I've never seen that before. And that's not, I'm not counting out Frank Martin for next year, all that good stuff. Uh, you know, if he returns, uh, and, and that's an if too, by the way, it's, it's, it's trending toward that folks, but they haven't agreed to anything yet. You know, Texas tech is a job that just opened that, uh, I think Frank Martin kind of fits their MO of who they go hire. I don't know how interested they are. Uh, Chris Beard, their very fine coach, went to Texas. That's got to stick in the crawl a little bit of the Red Raiders. But, um, you know, that job's open. Cincinnati could open. I mean, there still could be some other options for Frank out there. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't think anything's completely off the table right now. Uh, what I was told is don't expect anything until after the women's tournament's over. And, and all that, which I would guess makes sense. So I want to say this too, uh, and, and I know some of you out there that run these Instagram accounts are, are probably decent people uh, that try your hardest to become a relevant source on that particular platform. And, and I respect you for it. Um, 
you know, we, uh, we probably should do better on Instagram <laughs> just to be honest with both the podcast and the website. But, and, and well, like I said about April fools, you know, it's not funny to say that Kevin Harris towards ACL. That's not a funny joke for anybody. Um, it's probably not that funny to say Jordan Birch entered the transfer portal, but I can sort of accept that a little bit more than, than this. And it's because, you know, people, people take it seriously. They forget it's April fools. They're inundated with so many like bits of information on a daily basis that aren't true. You know, they probably didn't even think about the fact it's April fools. So, and I think anytime you speak something like that, like an injury in the public, that that's trash, you know, so, so do better, just do better. And um, I hope, I don't know if any of you will know what I'm talking about. Hopefully the, the post has been deleted, uh, but that's just, that's awful. I mean, you're not going to be any more relevant by doing that. You know, you, you're just going to be relevant by doing good work, just like we all are uh, and, and getting out there and, and find another thing that, that that's so outrageous that maybe people go, oh, that's April Fool's, you know. <laughs> Ray Tanner starts a birthday cake baking business and leaves Carolina, something like that. You know, that where everybody goes, huh? Oh, all right, we get it. Not, not about players tearing their ACL. That, that's trash. That's just garbage. Um, and so anyway, I wanted to, to mention that. Uh, but back to Frank Martin, you know, that's the situation where things are now. Um, we'll see sort of how – things go. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, like I said, I, I think it's probably greater than a 75% chance. He's definitely the coach of South Carolina next year, but it's the door's not slammed on some of these other opportunities. Now they continue to recruit. The portal continues to be active. We're up to, as far as reporting wise at the big Trey Hannibal, Jalen McCreary. See, those are two in-state guys too. That's unfortunate. Um, and TJ Moss has entered the portal. Uh, Keyshawn Bryant has declared for the draft. Um, am I missing a portal guy? I don't know. I thought Hannibal, then McCrary, then Moss. Bryant's declared. Uh, I'm hearing Bryant could come back uh, from people, uh, and, and there's kind of mixed opinions on this. I know the staff thinks they get a good shot to get him back. Um, AJ Lawson, I think is probably leaning towards going, but I was told yesterday by a couple of sources that, you know, it may not be a total done deal. I don't know about Cousinard yet, but, uh, or Manaya, Manaya and Woods probably are out. Um, based on what I've heard about those guys, they're just tired. You know, they're, they're just, They've had injuries and they can't. They just can't get back to, I don't know, their, their physicality uh, that they once had. You know that that was what was explained to me. So, uh, like like I said, you know, we'll see what happens uh, with the transfer portal and all that. But the portal swings both directions, and South Carolina uh, is trending towards getting a commitment from a kid from Columbia, Chico Carter Jr., who was uh, pretty good at Murray State down the stretch this past year. Uh, he shoots 80% from the foul line. He shoots uh, 44% from three. So those of you that think they need to get a shooter, uh, there's your shooter. He's 6'2", 195. Uh, and a pretty good player from Cardinal Newman right there in Columbia. So Columbia kid coming home um, from Murray State. <laughs> Ironically, Murray State. 
but uh, I think that'll be a pretty solid pickup. You know, this kid is a South Carolina kid that can play and, um, you know, probably can help the team next year is probably an upgrade over a TJ Moss. Um, although I don't know if he's a point guard, I think he's probably a shooting guard. So we'll see what happens, but they definitely need guys that can shoot. So that's, um, that's a good deal when you're talking about that. Uh, yeah. So, so we'll see, we'll see, we'll keep tracking the Frank Martin thing. Uh, like I said, it's, it's unfortunate that politics have gotten involved with this. I don't think, you know, like I said, politics are a reality of life when it comes to, you know, a big state supported school where they care. Uh, you know, these guys all have their teams and stuff like that. Um, but I've never seen a situation where barriers are thrown up by politicians. And that's the difference. You, you know, it's usually the other way around. Like, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to nudge you to make a change, you know, because we think you can get better um, rather than we, we don't, you know, we're not going to allow you or we're going to encourage you not to make a change. Uh, and threaten your funding for, you know, a very uh, uh, state-impacting situation or state-impacting project, sorry, like a medical school. I mean, are you kidding me? You threaten the medical school over athletics, something that's five times more expensive than than this buyout would be, you know, and you're going to lump the must-champ stuff. I mean, you know, like, like these guys like Ray Tanner and, Bob Caslin just aren't even keeping up with the books and don't know how much money they have. And, you know, they're, they're like on a shopping spree or something. I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, that's just not how it works. So uh, anyway, we'll see what happens with Frank Martin. I, like I said, I, I, and I said this on JB Goldwater yesterday, if he does come back and he gets players from the portal and he kind of rebuild it, maybe, maybe he gets fortunate and Lawson does come back. You know, I, I heard, you know, and I think people would agree with me. I don't, I don't, Lawson may be one of those guys that needs to stay and be in a college weight program for multiple years and, you know, like a Sundarius Thornwell. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's something to think about. Maybe, maybe that happens. And, you know, you have some new players that come in. You have uh, big men, Levesque, Frank, and Manot. I think those guys all have some upside to them. Uh, and, you know, poor Levesque was the only guy out there this year. Manat wasn't ready, obviously. And, and so maybe you have a year. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, like I also said yesterday, I don't. If I'm Frank Martin, I'm not really scheduling too terribly tough in the non-conference. I'm probably gonna, you know, try to get some, you know, some mid-majors that may win their conference that will boost my my net a little bit and. uh maybe play some high majors that, that I think I can beat, uh, you know, plus Clemson and whoever else is already scheduled. So, so there you go. I mean, that's, that's the deal there uh, with, with basketball and that Chico Carter situation is going to come down on Saturday for the Gamecocks. So Chico Carter could be coming home. Um, baseball. Uh, I know since last we talked, there's been four wins. <laughs> Gamecocks swept Florida, the preseason number one team in the country. Uh, Gamecocks came back and, and had a solid outing against Gardner-Webb on Tuesday, won nine to four. Now they go to Foley Field, which has been a house of horrors for the baseball team over the years. Uh, Georgia's pretty good. They're not great. Um, I think they're two and four in the league right now. So a chance to go get a series win on the road. Uh, and then you got Missouri which 
they're not very good and, and probably one of the weakest teams Carolina plays this year. Uh, you know, you go win that one, and, and before you hit the SEC West gauntlet, you're sitting there with a pretty solid, you know, maybe maybe like a 12 and three record uh, in the league. If, if my math is correct, maybe nine and three. I'm thinking nine and three, something like that. Uh, and certainly everybody's impressed with the baseball program and how they've gotten up off the mat. I said before when they were in the six game losing streak, it's, it's sometimes it's not about what happens to you, it's about how you respond. If you think about the football team this year, they did not respond, and that's why their season fell apart. And same thing with men's basketball. They did not respond. Uh, and so this baseball team right now is responding. But we all know that baseball goes up, they go down. Baseball, you ebb and flow through the season. You, you don't – you know, it's almost scary sometimes when you, when you win 11 in a row, then you lose six in a row, then you win another six in a row because that, that's a streaky ball club. <laughs> um, but I, I think they're about to settle in and play really consistent. Boy, uh, Wes Clark, unbelievably, unbelievable how he's – I mean, he could hit 20 home runs this year, which is unbelievable. Um, this day and age in college baseball with the dulled bats and all that they do. Uh, so, big series at Georgia this weekend. It's always big anytime South Carolina plays Georgia in any sport. Uh, and then they got a they got a midweek game next week against North Carolina and Charlotte's big anytime you play North Carolina in any sport. So four straight pretty big games for the university <laughs> by the baseball program. Speaking of big games for the university and responding and all that, congratulations to Dawn Staley and her team for reaching the final four for the third time in her tenure with a 62-34 win over Texas. Uh, Texas coach Vic Schaefer. You know, he used to be the coach at Mississippi State. He has he has a lot of trouble with South Carolina. <laughs> uh, you know, if we remember the national championship that uh, Dawn Staley won, he, she won it against Vic Schaefer and all those SEC tournaments and games and and all that. So, yeah, uh, that and and look, I think Vic Schaefer is going to build a, a pretty good team out there in Austin, from what I'm told. So. Uh, Longhorns will be back in women's hoops pretty soon. Uh, this is probably a nice start to get to the Elite Eight. Uh, and we'll talk, you know, uh, if those of you that are locked on the Gamecocks podcast patrons, uh, I am on with Keith today. It's Reunion Thursday. We didn't get to Reunion Thursday last week because Keith was in San Antonio covering the team um, on this pod, but we'll do it on that pod and then he'll come back next week. So we'll see uh, – See how it happens going forward. But congrats to, to Don Staley and the women's basketball team for reaching the final four. See, there's some, some good things happening um, in terms of, of actual results, uh, baseball, women's basketball. I know those aren't the sports that everybody loves to follow. And, you know, you're two and eight in football and six and 15 in men's basketball. That's, that's usually – that's enough to say, hey, that's a bad year. But – these other sports, things are happening pretty good, and uh, I can report to you now that, that football's going well, too. They're off this week for spring, kind of a pseudo-spring break. Uh, they're just doing meetings and things like that. Um, they had some uh, defensive player availability. Uh, Debo Williams, freshman linebacker from Delaware, transfer in from University of Delaware. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good uh, – he could, he's a good interview. I'll say that. And, and you know, watching his film too. And, and I, I thought that one of the, 
And I don't know that this particular writer meant anything by it. I think it's just more of an example of how stuck to star ratings people are these days, uh, especially, you know, when they look and, and try to make the uh, the mental leap that, you know, the reason Alabama is good is because of all the star rated guys they get. And they don't really understand that Alabama is good because they evaluate better than anybody in the country and they identify those guys sometimes before they're five-star guys. And so that's uh, that's why they're good, you know, and, and, and that's why Clemson's good because Clemson evaluates. So there's an evaluation process that goes kind of beyond the star ratings. Um, and so the, one of the tweets was three-star linebacker, five-star talker. Um, and I, I don't know that that's fair because this kid, when you watch him on film, he will hit you. He is uh, He's very, very physical. He's not scared. Uh, you can take the must champism, stick your face in the fan and like it and apply it to him. Uh, but he also does really well moving laterally. Uh, he was rated three stars and signed with an FCS school, Delaware, and then transferred down. Um, real good friends with Marshawn Lloyd. And look, maybe he can't play. I'm not sitting here saying that was, you know, the, the three-star rating was wrong. I just don't think that really matters. Uh, at this point because of the insinuation, I think, or how people took it. I don't know if that was the insinuation or not, was that, um, hey, this guy's a big talker, but he can't really play. And and that's not fair to say about that kid right now. Not not not, not right to not entering a program as a freshman, uh, all that good stuff. So it's uh, – I, I thought that was an unfortunate tweet from one of the local writers, and uh, I'll let you guys go figure out who that was and – and all that if and I don't even know if it was meant that way but but that just kind of reinforces what I've been saying that you know people uh, attach to these star ratings and, and uh, like I said I've, I've said it many times I made a, a good living doing star ratings and I'll defend the ratings and rankings and the people that do it uh, until I'm blue in the face but it's not universally applicable in the sport of football you know and yes you could you could do some math and you can make the math say whatever you want. You, you can say, well, you have a higher percentage of getting, you know, a higher percentage of four and five stars get to the NFL. Yeah, they should um, compared to three stars. But then if you're just talking about filling a football roster, there are more three stars and rated below that play on NFL teams than the others because there are more of them. Um, so, that doesn't necessarily mean anything when you're talking about building a roster full of players and, and that, that, you know, it's not so much that you don't want the four and five star guys because you definitely do because they have a high shot of turning out. Some of them don't, especially in the four star range, but you know, that doesn't mean that all these three stars guys are going to be average either because statistically it'll tell you that's not the case. J.C. Horn was a three-star rated guy by 24-7 sports. He was four per the composite. But 24-7 sports evaluation of him was that he, they had questions about his speed. Well, the kid ran 4.39 at 205 pounds at pro day. Did, did we ever see anything about J.C. Horn when he was at Carolina that would scream he's not that fast? No. Um people said the same thing about Stefan Gilmore. How fast is he in a straight line? That kind of thing. Um, 
And so, so my point about all this, this is wait and see. People can be wrong. I thought it was an unfortunate comment because uh, it made it made it sound like I don't know that this was the intent. Like the kid, you know, well, he's not that good. He's just talking, and and, and I don't know how good he's going to be or not. Like I said, but um, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily think he was talking smack. I think he was giving you kind of an insight into his mindset. And I think that some of that mindset has been missing at South Carolina, quite frankly, that, Hey, I'm going to get after you. G-A-T-A. <laughs> uh, I mean, and so that was refreshing. I also thought Zach Pickens, uh, cause there's this, you know, feeling out there for some reason that, that Zach Pickens has not lived up to expectations. Um, and I just don't think that. I, you know, he's a five-star guy, had to transition to the inside, played a good bit as a true freshman. Last year, uh, I thought he was the best defensive lineman on the team uh, in terms of the interior. You know, uh, I thought he was really good against the run, didn't get pushed around a lot, um, made some plays. But, but he was one guy out of a defense that included a lot of talented guys that just didn't, as a whole, that defense didn't play well. So, and that, that'll always be a mystery to me. I, just, <laughs> I have no idea why that defense didn't play well because they had players, you know, be it, you know, COVID or, or whatever, you know, by the end of the season, they didn't have a lot of players. They were bad at, bad at linebacker by the end of the year. But uh, stay at Zach Pickens if he feels like he's living up to expectations. He said, I don't care what other people think. Uh, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. He's like, I'm just going to go play. And he's, then he added that he never considered leaving. His mom taught him to finish what he started. Uh, and then he has he feels like he has a lot left in the tank and a lot left to prove as a college football player. And I think that's important because although I don't buy into the notion that Zach Pickens is somehow underachieved, uh, I think with help on the inside uh, that uh, South Carolina can – end up uh, being pretty good and, and, and thus Zach Pickens will make more flash plays because when you really, when you, I mean, Javon Kinlaw, uh, it took him three years to where with him being part of just a so-so defense. And I, I do think that defense was so-so. I think it was good, but not great. Um, it took him, you know, five years from the time he was in uh, high school to then to become that player on the interior and you see what he does now. So uh, I think Zach Pickens could, is probably gonna get there sooner than Javon. Uh, but it just, it just helps to have guys. I mean, it helps, it helps Javon Kimball a lot to have Kobe Smith next to it, you know? And then speaking of that in football, um, a personnel move that may have gotten overlooked, Taki Hemingway, they have slidden him inside. Uh, and that's sort of what we all projected him as. I think he's up to about 285 pounds, probably like 290 by the time the, the season gets there. If you watched him last year on the edge, you know, he held more than held his own as a true freshman. Um, and then you kind of slide him in. So, so that kind of helps because even if like Rick Sandage doesn't pan out or can't get consistent, uh, Jakeem Green, maybe he's not a starter, maybe he's a backup. That gives you a guy that last year proved on the field – that he's good enough to be on the field and that proved he could take that next step. He's a hard worker. He's an in-state kid. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting move 
uh, and something interesting to talk about because they do have, you know, they do have edge players. You do have Enigbari, you have Sterling, uh, you have Jordan Birch, obviously, and um, and you have Jordan Strong on the edge. Then you have other guys, you know, like Rodriguez Fitton, uh, who's still out there on the edge, and Tyreek Johnson. So I, you know, I, I thought that was a if they think he can go be in the two deep and, and help on the interior, by all means, do it. Uh, and Taka, uh, that's kind of where we all projected him uh, long term is defensive tackle. So I think that's a positive thing, positive thing that's happening uh, there in football. Like I said, no practice this week. Uh, I think that um, I think that's uh, that's pretty good. So we'll see sort of what happens. Um, you do have some. Uh, you do have some media availability now. I'll just pass along Colton Gauthier or Gother. Uh, talks about the offense, says they're going to huddle a bit. Uh, won't be a no huddle. He committed to South Carolina uh, and Columbia, not to a coaching staff, so he never wavered during the transition. Um, so look for more offensive talk uh, on thebigspur.com. Uh, coming up later today. So we'll get all that to you. All right, it's mailbag time. A lot of good mailbag questions, uh, some of which I answered yesterday on, in, in the long-lost episode uh, of this podcast. All right, so Phil says, it seems as the money is the issue as far as keeping Frank. Complete and utter disaster if we end up retaining him. I'm with you. I highly doubt we set the program back even further if this is the real issue. Well, I think when you talk about money, obviously money is being mentioned. But but when I talk about money is not the issue, again, Phil, I, I don't think that Bob Caslin and Ray Tanner were just sitting there, didn't didn't check the bank account and, and said, "Hey, uh, you know, we're just going to go spend this. We don't know, we don't know where it's coming from." You know, I mean, they're not the Federal Reserve; <laughs> they can't just sit there and print money. Um, I don't think they they said that's what we're going to do, and we're just going to, you know, we're just going to go print more money. <laughs> uh, and that was my point: is that there's really not a financial argument against this. Uh, if you're talking about a big time SEC program, yes, that's a lot to swallow. Twenty million in buyouts in a year uh, with COVID issues, that's a lot to swallow for a program. But the point is, they wouldn't do it or try to do it if they couldn't afford it. Um, that's the bottom line. Uh, and, and, and people talk all the time about what Ray Tanner should and should not be doing. This is part of what he should be doing is keeping up with his budget for his programs and staying within that budget and making sure you have the money for things. So uh, that's the deal there. Uh, I thought, um, you know, so, so money obviously is being mentioned, but money's not the issue, the bottom line issue. I don't know what the bottom line issue is. I, I think that the bottom line issue is, Maybe some people are uh, maybe reading the situation wrong, so to speak. So there we go there. Um, all right. So there's two ways to get in the mailbag. That one came in from the Twitter account at the Big Spur Pod. Be sure to tweet to me, uh, and I'll answer every tweet. Uh, be sure to follow that account at the Big Spur Pod. Um, all right. So we got more questions here. Uh, coming in uh, from the mailbag. The other way you get to the mailbag, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. 
This comes in from Mark. Good morning, JC. Which wide receiver needs to step up in order for this group to take the step, take another step? I'm going to go with all of them. <laughs> I'm not saying all SEC, but a clear, reliable number one receiver who can make third down catches to extend drives or step up in big moments. In my mind, that guy could be old Trey Smith, assuming he's healthy and ready to go. He had 30 catches in 2017, but I'll never forget the touchdown catch. The spark the comeback went over La Tech where the DB just ball, bounced off of him. He never lost stride. He was really good in the red zone as a freshman. Uh, I thought that those were his – that obviously is his best year. He's just been hurt. Uh, Mark, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you about him. A lot of people say he looks good in practice, but we've heard that. Uh, and, and that's not just BS. That's just, you know, he's looked good in practice, and, and then all of a sudden there's a setback with his health. So uh, – and he's been all off. You know, it's been since 2017 since he's done anything. Uh, on the field as far as uh, playing consistently. I do remember he had in t- early 2018, he had a nice catch against Georgia for a first down and early in that game, but, but that's been about it. Um, so I, I think, I, I think if you can get him to 30 catches this year, that's the back to what he did as a freshman, that's going to be big. Um, he's a big bodied guy when he's on, he's a matchup problem for smaller DBs. He's got good hands. Um, I don't know how fast he is, but you know, obviously this clip you sent me here, and we all saw it, he ran away from the DB after the DB bounced off of him. He gets open. I remember the touchdown catch against Texas A&M that he had. Uh, you know, he, he, he can be good in the red zone. So um, I'm with you. And, and, you know, you keep hearing his name more and more and more. Uh, I, I think that's a guy – that you can definitely say needs to step up. I also think a guy like Rico Powers, uh, who has a lot of talent, who's a young player, uh, and then Amarian Brown from Georgia Tech is a guy that's going to be pretty good. Jalen Brooks, you you can't forget about him. I hear he's done good things. Um, but I'll still say that, that this receiver core is not going to be ideal right now. Um, they're going to have to do some recruiting at this position. I don't know, you know – Omega Blake could be a guy that comes in and plays, even though you've got 13 scholarship guys there right now. Um, And they're going to try to get the best on the field. I also think with this offense, you're probably going to see, you know, some two tight end sets because you can, you can do a lot with an EJ Jenkins and a Nick Muse out there. And also a Jaheim Bell and Kevion Mullins. Um, So you're probably going to see some mixed formations like that. Marcus Satterfield was talking uh, the other day talking about how it's a pro style offense. And, and I know that makes people cringe because it's, you know, the, the, I used to say all the time, you can't run a pro style offense at South Carolina. You, you just, you can't do it. It doesn't work. And, and what I meant was more, you know, the, the eye form, everything's based in the eye. Uh, the old school Georgia offense under Mark Richt is probably what I was thinking. Or, you know, some of the things Doug Nussmeyer and Jim McElwain did at Alabama and Florida, where, you, yeah, you got the pistol that you run the ball, but it's basically a downhill running game and all that good stuff. I think, and I know this for a fact, what Marcus Satterfield's talking about is the, the pro-style offenses th- that are going up and down the field, the Sean McVay, Matt LaFleur, Kyle Shanahan type of offenses, which I think's kind of the way the game's trending, you know, wide open. Uh, and, and I think for the first time in my lifetime, I see more innovation offensively at the NFL level uh, than I do at the college level. And that's why uh, a lot of the new offensive coordinators around the SEC at Alabama, South Carolina, 
LSU and Kentucky, and, and there may be another one in there somewhere, all came from the NFL. Every single one of them. Two came, two came from the Panthers. Um, and then one came from the Rams. And then I think, of course, Bill O'Brien came from the Houston, Texas. And Bill, o, Bill O'Brien obviously is an excellent uh, play caller historically. Uh, he's at Alabama now. So, yeah, I, I think, that, 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 you know, you look and see kind of how things are, are trending in football. And I don't think South Carolina is going to be alone uh, in trying to have a modern pro-style offense. So I want to clear that up because sometimes people sit there and you, you hear pro-style and you go, oh, God, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust. That's It's not what's going to happen. I mean, you know, Lincoln Riley's offense at Oklahoma – is is an, is based in the air raid, which you know you'll have some concepts there like that, but it's essentially a pro style offense, you know these days. Um, Joe Brady, same thing. You know, Joe Brady came from the Saints, went to LSU, and then went back to the Panthers. Uh, you know, and so so you look at it. I just didn't want to alarm anybody because of that statement when he said pro style. I was like, oh man. So um, so we'll see what happens uh, with the offense and all that good stuff. But I, I think. I think you may be on to something with Smith. I, I also think there's a lot of guys in that receiving room that have potential. And I think if three of them can step up this year, it's going to be a pretty good year, you know, on offense especially. Um, like what I've been hearing about Luke Doty and his, uh, his accuracy as well. So thanks for that, Mark. Keith says – JC, who is the greatest college quarterback of all time? Tim Tebow, Cam Newton, Johnny Football, or Connor Shaw? Um, I'm going to have to go with Tim Tebow on this because of the accolades. Uh, I think Cam Newton had the single best season of any college quarterback. I think Johnny Football had a really magical year when he won the Heisman, and I think Connor Shaw was consistently good in the winter. Um, but, you know, with Tebow, you're talking about a guy that won a lot of games. They rarely lost when he was the quarterback at Florida won a Heisman and played on two national championship teams. Uh, so I think when you're talking about a combo of individual and team accolades, you know, Tebow's got to be your guy as far as college goes. Um, if you're looking at it like that. So that, that would be how I would answer that question. Uh, I think there are other great college quarterbacks out there that you can make a case for Vince Young comes to mind. Um, really, really good player. I mean, you can go all the way back to all the great Miami quarterbacks uh, the Vinny Testaverdes of the world. Um, lots of great college quarterbacks through the years. But uh, if it's just those four, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Tebow because of, uh, of the accolades and the team and individual accomplishments. So Thomas says, JC, I know how you feel about Frank and Ray. Yeah, I feel like they should be treated fairly. But what other program would sit on their hands for a coach nobody else would hire? Dragging this out has resulted in outside parties getting involved and bending the university over. Uh, I just don't see big-time athletic programs we want to compete with doing things like this. I think you're barking up the wrong tree. I don't think it's the athletic program's fault. I think it's the state government's fault. So you need to point your gun. I mean, you're – I don't want to say that because there was a shooting yesterday. I'm trying to be (laughs) sensitive. Um, you, You need to point your complaints in that direction, Okay. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It doesn't happen at big time athletic programs, but, and, and I know Thomas, you love to create processes in your mind about how you think things go. 
and and I've read your emails over the years, and I appreciate them, and I appreciate your post on the board. But you're wrong ninety five percent of the time because it, that's just not. I know the process. The process in your mind does not compute with reality. So so that's it. So so you know, in other words, Ray Tanner had he gone to make a move right after the season would have been told the exact same thing by the state government. This exact same thing. You'd have still had this big deal. And so now, now look, would there, would they have been able to push back publicly and head it off? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't think that doing the right thing by a guy that took you to the Final Four that coached through COVID twice uh, is wrong, and I'll never think that. I mean, I just – I think that trying to do th- – attempting to do things the right way is good, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it's not a situation where this was the, – the, the delay was what was costly. It was the, the politics. So I would complain to them. You know, I, I think there's a lot to complain about with, with Ray Tanner. I, I do. I, I think there's always a lot to complain about with every athletic director. Some of you act like Eric Hyman is, is a deity. That's not true. He did well. Uh, some of you act like Mike McGee is a deity. He did well. That's true. But so is Ray. Uh, you know, Hyman did some good things and bad things. McGee did some good things and bad things. Ray has done some good things and bad things. Whoever replaces Ray Tanner is going to do some good things and bad things. It's a tough job. You're never going to bat a thousand. Uh, some of the so-called greatest athletic directors out there that have all these national accolades uh, have more bad hires than good hires. You know, and so, so that's the bottom line. Um, you're right to the point that big-time athletics programs that are serious about winning – uh, like I said in the opening, I've never seen a situation where the po- politicians get involved to keep them from doing something that they think can improve them. Uh, I've seen them force the issue about going to improve something. I've never seen something like this where the politicians are saying, no, don't, we, you know, we know you want to make that move because you think you can do better, but no, you can't. Uh, that's crazy. Um, so I disagree that it's on radar for letting it drag out. Uh, and he says, now we're stuck with a coach that has to start another rebuild, only has sets the program back if he has to start over and then gets shown the door without seeing a second rebuild through because the next guy will then start his own rebuild. Feels like we're looking at four to six years of trying to get back to pushing for the tournament. Maybe. Uh, but I'll remind you, college basketball, at every school, there's going to be a lot of what, what I call roster fluidity <laughs> over the next few years. I mean – the portal has has changed football a little bit, but the bottom line is most players are still going to stick, and, and and the players you can get out of the portal are probably not that. But but, but with this situation in basketball, there's going to be a ton of really good players that want to go up a level. There's going to be guys that need to go down a level. There's going to be guys that just want to go from one school to another. That was already happening in basketball. I mean, there are already guys that play at three different schools. Jair Bolden. Uh, at Butler this year, you know, he was at George Washington, South Carolina, Butler. Um, and, and that's going to continue to happen. Uh, so I, I don't know that Frank, no Frank, whatever, that, that, that this is going to be as big of a setback as maybe you think. And, and I think, and this is my opinion, so maybe you're right, but uh, I don't, I don't think it's going to take, it, it shouldn't take as long as it did when Frank took over when, 
you know, you didn't have access to the portal and, and things like that, you know, like to, for immediate guys to come in. You had to build a little bit. Now, here's another interesting thing about Frank Martin, though, and I've noticed this. His players get better year to year, and, and the best players that he's had uh, – and look, I'm this year, obviously, a lot of guys did not get better, okay? Maybe Keyshawn Bryant. <laughs> uh, maybe A.J. Lawson was a little more consistent. Kusinar got worse. Um, a lot of guys didn't. I mean, you know, Levesque probably will be better for having played through this this year. Um, so not talking about this year, looking at it before, you know, the players that really thrive are the players that buy in and are there for multiple years. So I do think there's a question uh, as to how fast can he turn it if he's the guy that's going to turn it. Because we do hear – when he gets transfers, they had they take a little while to kind of get, you know, invested and, and pra- how they practice and how they work. So and and you know that's what makes Frank Martin ba- Frank Martin's basketball teams good is the buy-in on defense. People want to know what happened this year. Nobody played any defense. They didn't buy in. I mean that's that that's that's pressure defense and and and, and when they do use pressure defense and it works. You know, they go up and down the court with anybody. I mean, you know, people people act like Frank Martin is like Tony Bennett from Virginia and, and, and scores in the 50s and intentionally all the time. It's, no, it's, uh, his style of basketball at its best it is a lot like, you know, the second half against Duke in the NCAA tournament where South Carolina scores 65 points. That's probably the best half they've played uh, under Frank Martin. And, and so – if you think about it from that standpoint, that that's kind of what it's supposed to look like. The pressure defense uh, up and down the court, you know, some guys that can hit the three transition, that kind of thing. It just, this year, the transition was there. South Carolina pushed the ball up and down the court and up and down the court and was out of control and wild, wild shots and other teams just daggered them, you know, and, and, and it worked a couple of times against Georgia. You know, and so so that's the deal there. It, it's uh, it's just a tough year as far as that goes. But to get to the playing at that level, you know, we've heard over and over again that guys need to be entrenched, you know, and practice for a while. Um, and, you know, this year's team didn't get to practice for, for 30 days. It's probably not that they missed some games. It's just they, they didn't get to practice. And, and then things kind of snowballed during the conference. And there was, and, and again, there was no buy-in. So there, there was a lot that went wrong this year. Uh, and, and then I think that it's a fair question to say, well, are you going to be able to turn it around next season because of the style of play and, and the fact that you know you need buy-in and you need guys to get used to playing like that? But when, when but listen, I, I'm going to say this, this: there's nothing wrong with it. The, the style of play is very can be very successful. And the style of play, it's a myth that he wants to go out there and win games 46 to 39. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think at times uh, there are guys that are less skilled offensively that, that play just because of the defense and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's a situation where there's nothing wrong with how he coaches basketball. Uh, you know, I, I think that – the issue is when you're trying to turn something quickly uh, from where they were, you know, can you get the buy-in and, and can you get players used to it? Because it's tough 
uh, you know, to go out there and play that type of D over and over again. Um, so I think that's a fair question, Thomas. I think you had some good things. And then again, you, you missed the sort of the process idea there. Mitch not Mitchell says, as it stands right now, it looks like Tanner and Caslin were on the same page to move on from Frank. Yep. I was all for Frank coming back until last week and something smells bad about all of this. Now, I don't know what happened with the board of trustees, but firing a coach parting ways, isn't something that should happen unless everyone is on the same page at this point, given the room's rumor circumstances, could this debacle set recruiting back to a post Darren Horn, Darren Horn level? Well, they didn't have the portal again. I mean, I think that's a different, you're a different deal. Now, I'm not guaranteeing you that hitting the portal is the answer here um, for the reasons I just mentioned, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to, it should take, I don't think you have to go through two years of the absolute abyss like Frank did. Um, and like when, when he inherited it, I, I think there's enough there and enough out there to where you have a puncher's chance. Okay. So I, I don't, I, and, and look, if, 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 let's say Frank comes back next year, he gets, you know, he doesn't, doesn't do well. They move, everybody moves on. Uh, you know, then, then you just got to go get a new coach that can again go and, and put a roster together and, and turn it. I, I think, I think basketball is going to be able to turn. It's always been able to turn more quickly than football if you get players, but, but I think it's going to be able to turn even more quickly because of this transfer thing. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of players too that have extra years of eligibility because of COVID they're going to need places to play. I mean, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a wild West type of deal with roster management, college basketball. So I don't think regardless of what happens, this is going to set things back to a post Darren Horn level. Um, If you were Caslin and Tanner, would you give Frank an extension? Uh, I would definitely, if I'm keeping him, give him an extension and, and negotiate the buyout or let him coach next year with two years on his contract and part ways next year when there was more money in the athletics department to do so. I, I just don't believe in lame duck years. That, that's just my philosophy. Um, and two years left for a guy, that's a lame duck situation. So I don't, I, I don't, you know, cause next year you're rolling and it's one year. He's got one year left next season, one year. <laughs> um, so what are Frank's options? I got a lot of pride, but I'd put ketchup on it and eat it for $6 million and work for someone that wants to be fired. Um, yeah, I, I think I think Frank Martin would like to come back and get a shot at fixing it. I also think if some kind of job, Texas Tech, Cincinnati, opened up and they wanted him, I think he would go. Um, I, I, I think that at the end of the day, he has to know the situation here. Um, and I think he's a guy that you just – you don't want to ever underestimate because he's a guy that's, you know, been successful against the odds through his life. But but he's also a guy that I think feels unappreciated, quite frankly. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, if he can go somewhere and start anew where he feels appreciated – uh, and, and, you know, especially a, a place like, 
you know, Texas Tech's rolling in basketball right now. You know, they've got a lot of enthusiasm. No matter who gets that job, they're going to be able to kind of build on what Chris Beard started there. And, and, and look, Texas Tech's also been pretty good through the years. You know, there are a lot of good coaches go through there. Bobby Knight, Billy Gillespie, um, Tubby Smith was there for a while. Uh, but, you know, that's – we'll see what happens there with um, with that job. Uh, Cincinnati obviously is a place I think Frank Martin could not only win but but win big because, you know, Bob Huggins won big there. And they're kind of a team that, you know, they're blue-collar historically. They play great defense. You know, I think that would work uh, for him. So, uh, so there you go, Mitch, not Mitchell. That's, uh, that's the deal there. Um, I hope I answered all your questions <laughs> in that regard. That's kind of how I see it right now. Uh, Keith says, I may be late to the party, but I just started watching Last Chance You on Netflix. If you had to pick a head coach in a particular season of Gamecock football to be featured on a similar type show, who, what would you choose? I would choose the 2012 season because if you think about it, a lot, a lot went on in 2012, right? It was a big year for me personally, too. It was a, it was a 2012 was an interesting year. Um, so, so think about it. They opened the season at Vandy. That was a tough, tough, hard fall game on a Thursday night. The return of Marcus Lattimore, he had a big run. Connor gets hurt. Dylan Thompson comes in, looks awful. Connor comes back. Gamecocks squeeze out a 17-13 win. Shaq Wilson had an interception that game. Uh, so you move on and forward. And, you know, Missouri, the, the first Columbia Cup game, A. Sanders starts returning punts and has that big return. 31, you know, wax them. Georgia comes to town, one of the biggest wins in school history. Game day's there, 35-7. Well, then you start on the road, LSU. At LSU, loss. And then the game at Florida where – Florida beat them 44 to 11. And that was a loss. And then they didn't lose again, but you had that Tennessee game that Clowney saved and Lattimore got hurt. Uh, so there's drama. There's behind the scenes stuff galore. Um, also, you go up to Clemson, Connor Shaw's out for the game. You know, Dylan Thompson's going to play. And lo and behold, he, he wins that game. Spurrier had a great play calling night. Thompson had a great game, lit him up. Uh, and then people forget because you had the big clowny hit in the bowl against Michigan, and everybody remembers that play. But but what they don't talk about a lot is, you know, South Carolina got the ball back, scored, missed the two, went up 27-22. Michigan came back and scored. And then they get the ball, Shaw makes some plays, and then he has to go out. So Dylan Thompson comes in with, what, 10 seconds on the clock and throws a game-winning touchdown pass. Four verticals down the field to uh, Bruce Ellington. <laughs> wow. What a game, you know. And you had an electric punt returner in Ace Sanders, a lot of good receivers. Connor Shaw really started coming to his own when he was healthy that year. I think that was South Carolina's best team under Spurrier, top to bottom. Um, and, and, look, from a behind-the-scenes standpoint, I, I'd be curious to, you know, and I've talked to some people about it, but it's, so – yeah, I have certain opinions I've formed on it, but I, I like to see what what the heck happened in the swamp that day. Uh, you know, was that Will Muschamp? Is Will Muschamp and DJ? I guess it was DJ DJ Durkin or Dan Quinn. Then did they just draw up a, the greatest game plan ever to stop South Carolina's offense? Because uh, at, at one point, 
Jadevian Clowney's taking over the ball game in that game down there. Florida had, I think, 70 yards of offense, but they were up 21 to six. And then there was no comeback and, and all that. So there was there was some drama that year and some things that uh, this, that team had to overcome that I would be interested in looking at behind the scenes. Uh, so it would be 2012 uh, as a last chance you kind of deal. Uh, all right, so thanks, Keith, for that uh, that thing. Speaking of Keith's, <laughs> I'll be on the lot on the Gamecocks podcast later uh, to talk women's basketball, the Frank situation, all that good stuff. Uh, and we'll see kind of what ultimately happens with all that. We'll be back uh, rocking and rolling probably tomorrow um, and uh, talk some more. So that that's the deal there with everything. Be sure to check out the JB and Goldwater show every single day. Um, and then me on there on Wednesdays from 1230 to 1.30. Uh, also be sure to check out the big spur.com. You can still join for a dollar. That's a good deal. Um, and all that also follow at the big spur pod or at inside the Gamecocks on Instagram at the big spur pod on Twitter for our social media channels here. And continue to give out those five-star ratings on Apple Pods. It's J.C. Sherbert. Hope everyone has a wonderful, wonderful April 1st. This, this podcast contained no April Fool's jokes. <laughs> My sinuses are messing up, though, so I, I think that means spring is upon us. Uh, anyway, folks, hope you have a wonderful day. Holla at you soon.